Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. I spoke with my guest today, Elon Goldenberg, just a couple of hours after Donald Trump addressed the nation following an Iranian missile attack on bases in Iraq. The Iranian attack, of course, was in retaliation to a U.S. drone strike that killed a top Iranian official, Qasem Soleimani, on January 3rd. In his remarks, Donald Trump seemed to signal he was ready for the off-ramp and would not launch new military strikes in the near term. The Iranian government also said that the missile attacks on bases in Iraq had concluded their retaliation. For the moment, it seemed, the crisis is not poised to escalate. But, says Elon Goldenberg, we can very much expect Iran to launch further reprisals in the future. And this could include terrorist attacks and assassination attempts against U.S. targets. Elon Goldenberg is a former Defense Department official in the Obama administration whose work focused on Iran. He is now director of the Middle East Security Program at the Center for a New American Security in Washington, D.C. In our conversation, we discuss the events of the first week of January and what comes next. Elon Goldenberg describes the strategic thinking underway in Iran right now that led to this missile strike on a base holding U.S. troops in Iraq, and also why and how he expects further retaliation from Iran. We also discuss how the U.S. killing of Soleimani might affect Iran's compliance with the nuclear deal and what opportunities exist, if at all, for de-escalation. This is obviously a very fluid situation, uh, though at the moment it does seem we are at a pause in the escalatory cycle. And I say pause and not a de-escalation because, as Elon Goldenberg explains, uh, we can't expect some further retaliation from Iran. If you are new to the podcast, welcome. Please visit globaldispatchespodcast.com where you can peruse our robust archive of conversations about issues around the world. If you are a regular listener to the show, please do stay tuned after the interview portion of this episode where I have some announcements to make. And a note before we begin from Northwestern University's online master's program in global health, you can learn how to make a meaningful difference in places where it's needed most. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and click on the ad to learn more or go to sps.northwestern.edu slash global. The world most certainly needs more global health professionals right now. And now here is my conversation with Elon Goldenberg of the Center for a New American Security. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. 
Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So look, yeah, I was up on the Hill earlier today. Members of Congress are very concerned about where we are on on a number of different fronts with Iran. I think, most of all, they don't want to end up in another conflict with Iran or another conflict in the Middle East, right? Uh, And a major conflict with Iran. And they're very fearful that that's the direction we're going in because you have an administration. And these are Democrats who I was talking to. Um, But you have an administration who is not being very transparent with them. Uh, There's a lot of questions in particular about intelligence. Uh, You know, the justification for the strike last week, which I'm sure we'll talk more about. Uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo uh, was out there, um, you know, on the Sunday shows and all week saying that this was an imminent threat. But when you actually ask him, was there any intelligence behind the imminent threat? Um, You know, the answer kind of comes back, no. Uh, or, Or he refuses to answer and what he actually says is things like, well, what he said at the State Department the other day, he said, well, we lost an American contractor uh, you know, before we chose to strike. So that's a sign of an imminent threat. Um, that's not good enough. You know, if you have an imminent threat and that's how you're justifying an attack like this, uh, you've got to actually have intelligence about an upcoming operation. And everything we've seen in the news reporting since and stories coming out of the intelligence community has been like, no, there is no... No, yeah, that that right. um that press conference from Mike Pompeo was like a masterclass in dissembling. It, it was really it was it was just sort of startling and almost kind of frightening to to see yeah. him sort of uh. try to justify that attack without citing any evidence whatsoever to yeah. support the justification he ostensibly used to you know launch the attack. Yeah, I mean, although I will say it wasn't that masterclass because it was pretty transparent, right? I mean, this is the problem. These guys are so over the top sometimes, and he in particular can be so over the top in his public statements um, that, you know, the press just walks away irritated and annoyed and can hopefully see right through him. Um, So, yeah, this whole, this is a key question for members of Congress because they look at it from a particular angle, right? They look at it from war powers and justifications and like their role as as the legislative branch overseeing the executive branch. So there's bigger questions of strategy, I think, that go far beyond um, what, uh, whether the attack was justified or not, and whether or not there was an imminent threat. But I think I'm sure we'll talk more about that. Yeah. So um, we are speaking, you know, just you know, a couple hours after President Trump gave an address in which, you know, he seemed to signal a desire not to escalate this further following the strikes against um, uh, bases in Iraq last night. I guess I have, I have a couple of questions for you sure. as someone who's, who studied Iraq or on for a yeah. long time, who's worked professionally in the department of defense on Iran issues. Can you sort of help explain to listeners under what strategic logic are, is the Iranian regime operating right now? You know, they, they instituted this attack, which inflicted no casualties and apparently very limit, limited damage. Mm-hmm. And it's hard for me to imagine that this is the sum total of their response to the killing of, you know, a major general. Yeah. Um, so here's what the Iranians were doing, right? They are looking at their response options. There's a lot, there's a public outcry they, from the country. They feel like they have to do something quickly, uh, both symbolically uh, to signal to the United States, to signal to the world 
but they also don't really want to trigger a major confrontation with the United States because they know in that conflict they lose. And so what they chose to do was this highly symbolic strike. And it was symbolic, and this was the first time um, missiles had been launched overtly by another country against an American military target uh, since 2003, since the Gulf War, I believe, or since the Iraq invasion, I believe, um, when the Iraqis launched missiles at Kuwait and other bases that we had in the region. So from that perspective, it is a big deal. I mean, it's been almost 20 years since somebody's done something like that to us. Um, but for them, you know, if they could pair that with a public message to us, which basically was, this is, the, this is our response, don't retaliate. They even told the Iraqi government in advance that they were doing it, which, by the way, the Iraqi government would, of course, turn around and tell us. And uh, my understanding is, you know, most of these bases were evacuated before the strikes happened. So, you know, this was their initial symbolic foray. And at the same time, on Iranian media, uh, they're going off about how they've killed 100 Americans and using very, very harsh language. So I think this is part of their sort of propaganda play. But don't think that the retaliation is over. This might be the public piece of it. Um, they will find ways to or will try to find ways to retaliate. And, uh, you know, really, I think in the covert realm, in the more deniable realm, and there I think you can see, you know, attacks on American facilities, attacks on embassies, assassination attempts. Uh, these are the types of things that they, you know, cyber attacks. These are the types of things that they've done in the past. Um, and certainly they will look for their actual revenge. This was their symbolic revenge. What are some of the potential ways that <clears throat> Iran might respond further? So, um, so yeah, if I think you're not looking for total covert, you kind of want people, they kind of want people to know they did it, but they kind of want to be able, they want it to be deniable enough. Um, like the missile strikes, uh, on the Saudi facility a few months, months ago, like some of the mine strikes, uh, you know, the mine attacks, uh, on tankers in the Gulf in, in May and June. Um, so that's the kind of thing they want, um. You know, they've, they've gotten away with these kinds of terrorist attacks in the past without being attacked. I mean, they blew up, you know, a couple of Jewish facilities, uh, you know, centers in Argentina in the early 90s. Uh, they assassinated uh, dissidents in Europe in the mid-90s. Um, you know, they've, they've, they tried to, you know, blow up a D.C. restaurant and assassinate the Saudi ambassador uh, in 2011. Um, but, you know, they were... That that was really a sort of I like to say that was more Keystone Cops than Quds Force. Um, it was it was foiled pretty quickly um, and was pretty incompetent. Um, but you know um, they're gonna probably try to do something like that because um, they've gotten away with it in the past without necessarily triggering an all-out war. But this might be different, especially with this administration. Um, it's gonna take time, you know, and they'll have to calculate that into their response. Um, but yeah, other options that they have, um, it could be the Quds Force or it could be Hezbollah that does this, um, could be done anywhere in the region. I actually think Hezbollah would probably prefer to not do it in Lebanon, to not go after American facilities in Lebanon, um, and to not pick another fight with, you know, a fight with Israel, which I think would be devastating for Israel, even more devastating for Lebanon and for Hezbollah. Um, and so, you know, they might look to do attacks somewhere in the Gulf. They might also look to launch missiles for example, at American bases in the Gulf or American, uh, you know, or like Gulf oil or energy facilities, um, but do it much more quietly without taking public credit for it. Um, maybe. 
maybe. I actually think the missile stuff's a little less likely now that they've done this. Um, but these are some of the options they have to to play with. Um, the ones I'm most worried about are a terrorist attack or um, or an assassination attempt. And what makes you most worried about that? You think is it's sort of a plausible outcome right now that there's some sort of assassination <clears throat> attempt or a terrorist attack against civilian targets? Yes. And, and actually, the other thing that makes me, because it, it seems very proportional, you see what I'm saying? It's mm-hmm. got this, you killed one of our guys, so we're going to kill one of your guys. It's pretty, you know, there's that piece pretty straightforward. Also, if you look at the Imad Mugnia case, so Imad Mugnia was a senior Hezbollah operative, um, like the number two or three guy in Hezbollah. Um, he was assassinated by the Israelis in 2008. Um, now, he's Hezbollah, he's not Iran, but the two are very closely tied together. Um, and it turned out a few years later, it actually came out that we, the United States, did that jointly with the Israelis, which is kind of interesting. But at the time, nobody really knew that. Um, and what Hezbollah tried to do was it tried to assassinate senior Israeli officials in response. And when that failed, um, it ended up blowing up a bus in Bulgaria with 40 Israeli tourists on it. And five were killed and you had a number of injuries. I remember so, that, yeah. You know, so to me... That's well, and then and then didn't Iran yeah. try to attack um, uh, Israeli diplomats in various parts mm-hmm. of the world, like in in if I'm remembering yes. like the Philippines or something like that. Yes, and all that stuff and India. Most mm. of those things were pretty. I mean, what that told me though is um, a lot of those efforts were pretty, you know, were failed, right? And Iran actually even more recently um, uh, plotted an attack against uh, the MEK. Mujahideen al-Kilk, which is a, uh, um, you know, basically a separatist or resistance organization that the Iranians really hate. That I mean, it's got all kinds of problems of its own, almost like a cult. But um, but they they meet in Paris, and Iran tried to you know blow up an MEK conference just a few maybe a year ago in Paris, and also had an attack foiled in Copenhagen in the last couple of years, um, and so. They do this kind of stuff. They're not, but the thing that's important is, you know, for the most part, they're not nearly as good at doing it abroad. The further away you get from like their base of operations, the the less capable and competent they are at doing this. You know, they're much more effective operating in a place like Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, even the Gulf, than they are the further they get away from home. But you would not be surprised if, in some time in the future, it's hard to tell when there is some sort of major terrorist attack against American targets. Yes, in response. I, do, I would not be surprised. I would not be surprised. Going back to the actual killing of Soleimani, um, mm-hmm. um, okay. I'm interested in both sort of how individually, um, how, how much of an individual influence he had over the various Iranian proxies that were operating in the region, for one, and how his mm-hmm. death affects the operations of those proxies, and two... Um, you're seeing all this huge you know, fallout from the, yeah. the U.S. killing and what that means for U.S. postures in, in Iraq, U.S. presence in Iraq and broader, you know, and then the broader geopolitics of the region. So, look, in terms of him as an individual, I mean, look, he was a big deal, right? He was the guy who drove Iran's policy in Iraq, Syria, I mean, Lebanon, um, had very close ties with Nasrallah in Lebanon. You know, the, Hassan Nasrallah, who's the head of uh, Lebanese Hezbollah, you know, was personally directing uh, some of the uh, attacks and Shia militia groups in Iraq. Um, but still, Iran is a big country with a big government and institutions. Um, and, you know, his deputy has been doing, had been doing this for 20 years, who's now stepping into this role. So, you know, I'm skeptical 
to see a major reduction in Iranian capability as a result of this. Um, we'll see over time what it means with him gone, but I don't think it really changes Iran's MO in the region or how they're going to conduct themselves or how effective they might be. Um, in terms of the broader regional implications, um, you know, I think it does, well, maybe the biggest, you know, political implication for the region uh, is like what happens to the American presence in Iraq. And that is still very much an open question. I mean, the Iraqis, I was in Iraq about a month ago. And really what I felt talking to Iraqis then is they're getting to the point where they, they just want their country back. They're sick of the Americans. They're sick of the Iranians. They just, you know, they want to really be able to run their own show. And their worst nightmare is becoming the chessboard in a fight between, uh, you know, the United States and Iran. And that's where we are right now. So they respond to all this by calling for the removal of American forces. Um, <clears throat> you know, you had a vote in the parliament, but you still have a caretaker government. A lot of members of parliament chose not to vote. <clears throat> you know, it's not at all clear that they're about to eject us tomorrow. Um, but it's a complicated situation. And this is what the Iranians are going to try to play for in Iraq. They're going to try to get us kicked out of Iraq, um, which has long-term implications for the counter-ISIS fight, for our ability, you know, and just, I, I don't, I'm not one who believes we should stay in Iraq forever. But I don't think getting kicked out after killing Qasem Soleimani and then sort of, you know, being seen as being booted out because of Iranian influence and interest is really like how we want, want to leave Iraq. Um, and it also, you know, it puts, you know, our diplomats in danger in Iraq. It puts, you know, international humanitarian relief workers who are trying to do a lot of work in the post-ISIS uh, conflict uh, in, a, in a tough position in terms of security. So you put all those things together. Um, and, um, yeah, it's, you know, it's a, um, it's kind of an earthquake. Um, I also actually think geopolitically what's been interesting is, is, uh, is watching Saudi Arabia and yeah. uh, the UAE, you know? Yeah. They, they seem to have like some buyer's remorse. Totally. I, I, I sort of sometimes they'll be like the dog who caught the car, you know? Um, yeah. They, it, it, explain that a, a little bit. Cause it was sure. really interesting. It was, I was like shocked to, to, to see it as well. Sure. So, and this has been like the last six months. For for years, Saudi Arabia and the UAE have pushed the United States to have a harder line on Iran, and you know I'm really concerned about Iran. And I do think the Emiratis are more nuanced about it, and the Saudis have been more ideological because the Emiratis are smaller and they're closer to Iran. And and actually, like Abu Dhabi, which is right, like has has is pretty strongly anti-Iran, but Dubai, which is the other major city in Emirate, is has a lot of trade with Iran, but. The bottom line is they both pushed this really hard line. And then when things started going boom in, in May and June, you know, mysterious, um, you know, attacks on, on shipping in the UAE port of Fujairah, um, and almost silence from the UAE and Saudi Arabia and, you know, the missile strike on Saudi territory uh, on their oil facilities, barely even acknowledging it was Iran um, and kind of getting panicky and nervous. So, look, I mean especially the UAE, they've built a lot of nice things. I don't really think they want to see them all destroyed by a war with Iran. And so after pushing us for years, um, now all they want is really de-escalation. They think the situation has gone too far. And it could actually create a long-term opportunity for diplomacy and negotiation between the Gulf states and Iran. Um, now that the Gulf states are seeing like what, what maximum pressure could actually, uh, you know, be the, could result in. Um, 
I also wanted to ask you about the implications uh, of this episode on Iran's nuclear program. You know, before, you know, before these, this escalation, these attacks, you know, Iran was taking some incremental steps to, um, you know, violate terms of, of uh, the JCPOA, you know, while the United States, you know, obviously pulled out of the agreement and violated terms on its own. Um what do you see as the likely as Iran's next likely steps in terms of its nuclear program here? Sure. Well, I was actually because I, you know, I was concerned about this too, and I thought they might dramatically escalate. Right? They've been doing steps every sixty days, and and they were scheduled actually to take a step this week. They were pretty measured in their initial response. Basically, uh, are going to be now enriching <coughs> or installing more centrifuges. But they've not done the most provocative things. The two most provocative things, one is starting to enrich a 20% uh, in uh, uranium, which would put them significantly closer to a nuclear weapon and sort of shorten the timeline for a dash if they decided they wanted to go for a bomb. <coughs> the second, um, this is the one we really need to worry about, is inspectors and um, all the various uh, inspection regimes that are in place that have been in place since the JCPOA. Because the reality is um, the most likely scenario for an Iranian move to a nuclear weapon is not that they take the facilities we know about and the uranium that we know about and start using that. It's that they secretly and covertly build a nuclear bomb uh, and, you know, and try to get away with it and not get caught. And that's a, almost impossible for them to do given the current inspection regime. And so if we can keep that in line um, for as long as possible, I think that's the that's what we want to do. And so that's the thing that I'm looking for is the moment Iran starts pushing down its uh, cooperation with inspectors or even pushing out inspectors. That's when I get very, very nervous about that. And, you know, I guess to that end, like, why wouldn't Iran at this point not want to, to do that if only for the fear that they would get, you know, bombed by the United <clears throat> States? I think there's fear of getting bombed. But the other thing is, I think they really still want the sanctions relief and they see that the most likely way they can get sanctions relief is trading parts of the nuclear program for sanctions relief. Uh, so, you know, the Trump administration has reimposed all these sanctions. Iran has been slowly escalating, um, you know, but it wants to try to keep the Europeans kind of on board on their side. It wants to try to look for some kind of deal. Uh, I mean, you know, we had these, the French led an initiative, the Japanese have led a different initiative. There's all these efforts to try to get, some kind of interim first confidence building step where, you know, the Iranians re-engage in negotiations with Trump in exchange for some sanctions relief. I don't think it's going to happen. I think now it's probably, I mean, definitely off the table. The Iranians just didn't trust Trump uh, and were also, um, you know, kind of concerned politically they couldn't be seen as meeting with him. He really wants a public meeting. There are all kinds of reasons for why it might not happen. But you know, I think they want to leave it on the table as a possibility. So I guess we seem to be at this weird space right now, based on everything you're telling me, where we're sort of like between crises, like this, this last crisis, um, the killing of Soleimani and the retaliation by Iran um, was sort of like phase one. Both sides have signaled that they don't want to escalate from here. Yet you have told me that we can almost be certain to expect some sort of you know, terrorist attack or assassination attempt by Iran against, you know, American targets, um, that will precipitate the, the next crisis. Um, mm -hmm. so it's like, we're in this, this weird spot right now. Are there any 
potentials for a more permanent sort of off ramp to this escalating to like a you know that escalated escalatory ladder? Um, I mean, I think just looking for diplomatic channels and trying to get some kind of communication. One of the unfortunate things is you know like our best channel to Iran, especially into the Supreme Leader and the Revolutionary Guard, has always been the Omanis, um, and that's really through Sultan Qaboos, um, who is very sick. Um, and sort of off the table right now. Um, and that means like it's really hard to have direct channels of communications, which is unfortunate. I mean, it was already very hard, but it's even harder uh, with Caboose and his, uh, you know, and his illness. Um, so we are in this weird spot where I think the only thing that could possibly start to, if we make a, if we take a step elsewhere, like getting some kind of interim step um, where, um, we have uh, the U.S. relieves some sanctions in exchange for, um, you know, some Iran taking some steps back on its nuclear program, and overall it improves the environment. I think that would be, you know, one positive step. Or if you can get maybe maybe the Gulf states are even more anxious now than they have been before and are willing to engage, and you can start to have. A, you know, more of a regional dialogue. Both those things might be pathways to improving the situation. Um, but it is very hard for me to imagine Iran doesn't. I mean, and the other thing we can hope for, and I think we should obviously hope for this for many reasons, is Iran tries a number of things and they all fail. Um, you know, and maybe they run out of time and you end up with a different president and they're, they're less dedicated to retaliating against somebody who's not Donald Trump. Though, I think it's important to note, like, it was not Donald Trump who attacked Qasem Soleimani. It was the United States of America who attacked Qasem Soleimani. And so that's going to have – that's not the type of thing you can just, you know, you know, June 20 – or January 21st, 2021, if you have a different president, well, like let's let bygones be bygones. Like no. You know, I mean this is something that will be remembered. Um, and you could even see retaliation in a different administration. So, um, you know, this is – that's a real tough one unless the environment around it – dramatically improves that's the only thing i think that can reduce the likelihood of the iranians then deciding to retaliate uh well thank you Anna, for your time this is this is helpful sobering but helpful sure sure well happy to do it all right thank you all for listening thank you to elon that uh was a sobering conversation but here we are with a major crisis to start 2020 um, so regular listeners of the podcast, a couple of announcements for you. First, the bonus episode that I've posted this week is my conversation with Andrew Mack, he who coined the term asymmetric warfare, which certainly you've been hearing a lot of in recent weeks if you've been following news. So you can become a premium subscriber to access that episode by going to patreon.com slash global dispatches or just following the links on global dispatches podcast.com. Also, I have a new bonus I wanted to roll out for premium subscribers, which is you know essentially office hours with me. If you have questions you want to ask me or anything on the line you want to discuss with me, I'll set aside a couple of hours each month. We can talk over the phone or in a Skype or Google Hangout, and you can tell me what's on your mind, ask me any questions you have. I'm just happy to share my time with you. Again, this will be available to premium subscribers, and I will send you out my availabilities uh, if you become a premium subscriber. Thank you all. And if you're already a premium subscriber, look forward to an email uh, from me coming soon.
I will see you later. Thank you. Bye.